Chapter 4, Part 2 of Principles of Geology. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. Principles of Geology by Charles Lyell. Section 10. Chapter 4, Part 2. Voltaire. Voltaire had used the modern discoveries in physics as one of the numerous weapons of attack and ridicule directed by him against the scriptures. He found that the most popular systems of geology were accommodated to the sacred writings, and that much ingenuity had been employed to make every fact coincide exactly with the mosaic account of the creation and deluge. It was, therefore, with no friendly feelings that he contemplated the cultivators of geology in general, regarding the science as one which had been successfully enlisted by theologians as an ally in their cause. He knew that the majority of those who were aware of the abundance of fossil shells in the interior of continents were still persuaded that they were proofs of the universal deluge and as the readiest way of shaking this article of faith, he endeavoured to inculcate scepticism as to the real nature of such shells, and to recall from contempt the exploded dogma of the 16th century, that they were sports of nature. He also pretended that vegetable impressions were not those of real plants. Yet he was perfectly convinced that the shells had really belonged to living testacea, as may be seen in his essay on the formation of mountains. He would sometimes, in defiance of all consistency, shift his ground when addressing the vulgar, and, admitting the true nature of the shells collected in the Alps and other places, pretend that they were eastern species which had fallen from the hats of pilgrims coming from Syria. The numerous essays written by him on geological subjects were all calculated to strengthen prejudices partly because he was ignorant of the real state of the science and partly from his bad faith on the other hand they who knew that his attacks were directed by a desire to invalidate scripture and who were unacquainted with the true merits of the question might well deem the old diluvian hypothesis incontrovertible if Voltaire could adduce no better argument against it than to deny the true nature of organic remains. It is only by careful attention to impediments originating in extrinsic causes that we can explain the slow and reluctant adoption of the simplest truths in geology. First, we find many able naturalists adducing the fossil remains of marine animals as proof of an event related in scripture. The evidence is deemed conclusive by the multitude for a century or more, for it favours opinions which they entertained before, and they are gratified by supposing them confirmed by fresh and unexpected proofs. Many who see through the fallacy have no wish to undeceive those who are influenced by it, approving the effect of the delusion and conniving at it as a pious fraud, until, finally, 
an opposite party, who are hostile to the sacred writings, labour to explode the erroneous opinion by substituting for it another dogma, which they know to be equally unsound. The heretical Vulcanists were soon after openly assailed in England by imputations of the most illiberal kind. We cannot estimate the malevolence of such a persecution by the pain which similar insinuations might now inflict. For although charges of infidelity and atheism must always be odious, they were injurious in the extreme at that moment of political excitement, and it was better, perhaps, for a man's good reception in society that his moral character should have been traduced than that he should become a mark for these poisoned weapons. I shall pass over the works of numerous divines, who may be excused for sensitiveness on points which then excited so much uneasiness in the public mind, and shall say nothing of the amiable poet Cowper, who could hardly be expected to have inquired into the merit of doctrines in physics. But in the foremost ranks of the intolerant are found several laymen who had high claims to scientific reputation. Among these appears Williams, a mineral surveyor of Edinburgh, who published a Natural History of the Mineral Kingdom in 1789, a work of great merit for that day, and of practical utility, as containing the best account of the coal strata. In his preface, he misrepresents Hutton's theory altogether, and charges him with considering all rocks to be lavas of different colours and structure, and also with warping everything to support the eternity of the world. He descants on the pernicious influence of such sceptical notions as leading to downright infidelity and atheism, and as being nothing less than to depose the almighty creator of the universe from his office. Kerwan Diluc Kerwan, president of the Royal Academy of Dublin, a chemist and mineralogist of some merit, but who possessed much greater authority in the scientific world than he was entitled by his talents to enjoy, said, in the introduction to his Geological Essays, 1799, that sound geology graduated into religion and was required to dispel certain systems of atheism or infidelity, of which they had had recent experience. He was an uncompromising defender of the aqueous theory of all rocks, and was scarcely surpassed by Burnett and Whiston in his desire to adduce the mosaic writings in confirmation of his opinions. De Luc, in the preliminary discourse to his treatise on geology, says... The weapons have been changed by which revealed religion is attacked. It is now assailed by geology, and the knowledge of this science has become essential to theologians. He imputes the failure of former geological systems to their having been anti-mosaical and directed against a sublime tradition. These and similar imputations, reiterated in the works of Deluc, seem to have been taken for granted by some modern writers. It is therefore necessary to state 
in justice to the numerous geologists of different nations whose works have been considered, that none of them were guilty of endeavouring, by arguments drawn from physics, to invalidate scriptural tenets. On the contrary, the majority of those who were fortunate enough to discover the true cause of things rarely deserved another part of the poet's panegyric, atque metus omnes subjected pedibus. The caution and even timid reserve of many eminent Italian authors of the earlier period is very apparent, and there can hardly be a doubt that they subscribed to certain dogmas, and particularly to the first diluvian theory, out of deference to popular prejudices rather than from conviction. If they were guilty of dissimulation, we may feel regret, but must not blame their want of moral courage, reserving rather our condemnation for the intolerance of the times and that inquisitorial power which forced Galileo to abjure and the two Jesuits to disclaim the theory of Newton. Hutton answered Kerwan's attacks with great warmth and with the indignation justly excited by unmerited reproach. He had always displayed, says Playfair, the utmost disposition to admire the beneficent design manifested in the structure of the world, and he contemplated with delight those parts of his theory which made the greatest additions to our knowledge of final causes. We may say with equal truth that in no scientific works in our language can more eloquent passages be found concerning the fitness, harmony and grandeur of all parts of the creation than in those of Playfair. They are evidently the unaffected expressions of a mind which contemplated the study of nature as best calculated to elevate our conceptions of the attributes of the first cause. At any other time, the force and elegance of Playfair's style must have ensured popularity to the Huttonian doctrines. But, by a singular coincidence, Neptunianism and orthodoxy were now associated in the same creed, and the tide of prejudice ran so strong that the majority were carried far away into the chaotic fluid and other cosmological inventions of Werner. These fictions the Saxon professor had borrowed with little modification and without any improvement from his predecessors. They had not the smallest foundation either in scripture or in common sense, and were probably approved of by many as being so ideal and unsubstantial that they could never come into violent collision with any preconceived opinions. According to De Luc, the first essential distinction to be made between the various phenomena exhibited on the surface of the earth was to determine which were the results of causes still in action and which had been produced by causes that had ceased to act. The form and composition of the mass of our continents, he said, and their existence above the level of the sea, must be ascribed to causes no longer in action. These continents emerged, at no very remote period, on the sudden retreat of the ocean, the waters of which made their way into subterranean caverns.
The formation of the rocks, which enter into the crust of the earth, began with the precipitation of granite from a primordial liquid, after which other strata containing the remains of organised bodies were deposited, till at last the present sea remained as the residuum of the primordial liquid and no longer continued to produce mineral strata. William Smith, 1790 while the tenets of the rival schools of Freiburg and Edinburgh were warmly espoused by devoted partisans, the labours of an individual, unassisted by the advantages of wealth or station in society, were almost unheeded. Mr. William Smith, an English surveyor, published his Tabular View of the British Strata in 1790, wherein he proposed a classification of the secondary formations in the west of England. Although he had not communicated with Werner, it appeared by this work that he had arrived at the same views respecting the laws of superposition of stratified rocks, that he was aware that the order of succession of different groups was never inverted, and that they might be identified at very distant points by their peculiar organised fossils. From the time of the appearance of the tabular view, the author laboured to construct a geological map of the whole of England, and with the greatest disinterestedness of mind, communicated the results of his investigations to all who desired information, giving such publicity to his original views as to enable his contemporaries almost to compete with him in the race. The execution of his map was completed in 1815 and remains a lasting monument of original talent and extraordinary perseverance, for he had explored the whole country on foot, without the guidance of previous observers or the aid of fellow labourers, and had succeeded in throwing into natural divisions the whole complicated series of British rocks. Dobisson, a distinguished pupil of Werner, paid a just tribute of praise to this remarkable performance, observing that what many celebrated mineralogists had only accomplished for a small part of Germany in the course of half a century had been effected by a single individual for the whole of England. Werner invented a new language to express his division of rocks and some of his technical terms, such as Gravaca, Nice, and others, passed current in every country in Europe. Smith adopted for the most part English provincial terms, often of barbarous sound, such as galt, cornbrash, clunch clay, and affixed them to subdivisions of the British series. Many of these still retain their place in our scientific classifications and attest his priority of arrangement. Modern Progress of Geology The contention of the rival factions of the Vulcanists and Neptunists had been carried to such a height that these names had become terms of reproach, and the two parties had been less occupied in searching for truth than for such arguments as might strengthen their own cause or serve to annoy their antagonists. A new school at last arose, who professed the strictest neutrality, 
and the utmost indifference to the systems of Werner and Hutton, and who resolved diligently to devote their labours to observation. The reaction, provoked by the intemperance of the conflicting parties, now produced a tendency to extreme caution. Speculative views were discountenanced, and, through fear of exposing themselves to the suspicion of a bias towards the dogmas of a party, some geologists became anxious to entertain no opinion whatever on the causes of phenomena, and were inclined to scepticism even where the conclusions deducible from observed facts scarcely admitted of reasonable doubt. Geological Society of London But although the reluctance to theorise was carried somewhat to excess, no measure could be more salutary at such a moment than a suspension of all attempts to form what were termed theories of the earth. A great body of new data were acquired, and the Geological Society of London, founded in 1807, conduced greatly to the attainment of this desirable end. To multiply and record observations, and patiently to await the result at some future period, was the object proposed by them, and it was their favourite maxim that the time was not yet come for a general system of geology, but that all must be content for many years to be exclusively engaged in furnishing materials for future generalizations. By acting up to these principles with consistency, they, in a few years, disarmed all prejudice and rescued the science from the imputation of being a dangerous, or at best, but a visionary pursuit. A distinguished modern writer has with truth remarked that the advancement of three of the main divisions of geological inquiry have during the last half century been promoted successively by three different nations of Europe, the Germans, the English and the French. We have seen that the systematic study of what may be called mineralogical geology had its origin and chief point of activity in Germany, where Werner first described with precision the mineral characters of rocks. The classification of the secondary formations, each marked by their peculiar fossils, belongs, in a great measure, to England, where the labours before alluded to of Smith and those of the most active members of the Geological Society of London were steadily directed to these objects. The foundation of the third branch, that relating to the tertiary formations, was laid in France by the splendid work of Cuvier and Brongniart, published in 1808, on the mineral geography and organic remains of the neighbourhood of Paris. We may still trace, in the language of the science and our present methods of arrangement, the various countries where the growth of these several departments of geology was at different times promoted. Many names of simple minerals and rocks remain to this day German, while the European divisions of the secondary strata are in great part English and are, indeed, often founded too exclusively on English types. Lastly, the subdivisions first established of the succession of strata in the Paris Basin have served as normal groups to which other tertiary deposits throughout Europe 
have been compared, even in cases where this standard was wholly inapplicable. No period could have been more fortunate for the discovery, in the immediate neighbourhood of Paris, of a rich store of well-preserved fossils than the commencement of the present century, for at no former era had natural history been cultivated with such enthusiasm in the French metropolis. The labours of Cuvier in comparative osteology and of Lamarck in recent and fossil shells had raised these departments of study to a rank of which they had never previously been deemed susceptible. Their investigations had eventually a powerful effect in dispelling the illusion which had long prevailed concerning the absence of analogy between the ancient and modern state of our planet. A close comparison of the recent and fossil species and the inferences drawn in regard to their habits accustomed the geologist to contemplate the earth as having been at successive periods the dwelling place of animals and plants of different races, some terrestrial and others aquatic, some fitted to live in seas, others in the waters of lakes and rivers. By the consideration of these topics, the mind was slowly and insensibly withdrawn from imaginary pictures of catastrophes and chaotic confusion, such as haunted the imagination of the early cosmogonists. Numerous proofs were discovered of the tranquil deposition of sedimentary matter and the slow development of organic life. If many writers, and Cuvier himself in the number, still continued to maintain that the thread of induction was broken, yet, in reasoning by the strict rules of induction from recent to fossil species, they, in a great measure, disclaimed the dogma which in theory they professed. The adoption of the same generic, and in some cases even of the same specific, names, for the exuviae of fossil animals and their living analogues was an important step towards familiarizing the mind with the idea of the identity and unity of the system in distant eras. It was an acknowledgment, as it were, that part at least of the ancient memorials of nature were written in a living language. The growing importance, then, of the natural history of organic remains may be pointed out as the characteristic feature of the progress of the science during the present century. This branch of knowledge has already become an instrument of great utility in geological classification and is continuing daily to unfold new data for grand and enlarged views respecting the former changes of the earth. When we compare the result of observations in the last 50 years with those of the three preceding centuries, we cannot but look forward with the most sanguine expectations to the degree of excellence to which geology may be carried, even by the labours of the present generation. Never, perhaps, did any science, with the exception of astronomy, unfold in an equally brief period so many novel and unexpected truths and overturn so many preconceived opinions. The senses had for ages declared the earth to be at rest until the astronomer taught 
that it was carried through space with inconceivable rapidity. In like manner was the surface of this planet regarded as having remained unaltered since its creation, until the geologist proved that it had been the theatre of reiterated change and was still the subject of slow but never-ending fluctuations. The discovery of other systems in the boundless regions of space was the triumph of astronomy. To trace the same system through various transformations, to behold it at successive eras adorned with different hills and valleys, lakes and seas, and peopled with new inhabitants, was the delightful meed of geological research. By the geometer were measured the regions of space and the relative distances of the heavenly bodies. By the geologist, myriads of ages were reckoned not by arithmetical computation, but by a train of physical events, a succession of phenomena in the animate and inanimate worlds, signs which convey to our minds more definite ideas than figures can do of the immensity of time. Whether our investigation of the Earth's history and structure will eventually be productive of as great practical benefits to mankind as a knowledge of the distant heavens must remain for the decision of posterity. It was not till astronomy had been enriched by the observations of many centuries and had made its way against popular prejudices to the establishment of a sound theory that its application to the useful arts was most conspicuous. The cultivation of geology began at a later period, and in every step which it has hitherto made towards sound theoretical principles, it had to contend against more violent prepossessions. The practical advantages already derived from it have not been inconsiderable, but our generalizations are yet imperfect, and they who come after us may be expected to reap the most valuable fruits of our labour. Meanwhile, the charm of first discovery is our own, and as we explore this magnificent field of inquiry, the sentiment of a great historian of our times may continually be present to our minds, that he who calls what has vanished back again into being enjoys a bliss like that of creating. End of chapter 4, part 2